My name is Asia Freeman. I'm the artistic director of Benell Street Art Center, which is situated on indigenous land. It's all indigenous land here. And specifically in this area, it's Denina land. Um, Benell occupies um, uh, part of the Ninilchik village tribes land here at um, the mouth of Ketchumak Bay called Kachikmak by the Sukpiak people who are across the water. We're grateful to, to be in this beautiful place that's been stewarded for thousands of years since time immemorial by the indigenous people of this region. And it's um, very important to Benal, it's central to our work to um, lean into and support the leadership and the artistic vision of um, indigenous artists in Alaska and beyond. This month, with support from National Performance Network, we've been really pleased to have artist in residence, Nina Elder, who spends time in Alaska every year out in the Wrangles and also um, has a home in the Albuquerque area. In framing the um, conversation today, um, Nina's gonna talk about her fascination with materials, fraying materials found from the beach, lines and tension release and mending. And joining us is her good friend, uh, co-conspirator, collaborator at times, Billy Joe Miller, who's also from Albuquerque. So welcome, Nina, and welcome, Billy Joe. Thank you. Yeah, I'm just so thrilled to be here. Um, I'm acutely aware that time is fluid and has different viscosities. Um, in different times and places. And this month in Homer has just flown by. I think a lot of people thought I was crazy that I wanted to come to Alaska in winter. And I know why now, um, because it's just been a stunningly beautiful month. Um, the generosity of the community around the Bunnell Street Art Center is extraordinary. Um, even during COVID, it, you know, it could have been a really challenging time. Um, and I've had just a, a really wonderful experience. Um, and so, yeah, thank you to both of the Breeze and to Asia and to Adele. Um, I really appreciate all the support. And I'm so excited that in talking about inspiration and really kind of trying to figure out how these complex projects happen, I was like, you know, there's a person that I've really, really been thinking about every day since I've been here and since I started this vein of work, and that's Billy Joe Miller. Um, and so even though he's not been to Homer per se, and um, he's been in my heart this month and a big inspiration. So I'm really excited just to kind of have him um, in this conversation to help tease out some of the themes. Do you wanna say hi, Billy Joe? Yes. Hi from uh, the East Mountains of Albuquerque. We're kind of on the backside like there's Albuquerque and there's mountains and then we're behind. And I'm on the unceded land of the Tano, Tiwa, um, Hickoria and Comanche people. Um, it was really neat actually to talk to a friend, Moises Gonzalez, um, because I wanted to know more than that I was on the land of the Tiwa people and um, it was really cool to get stories from him. Um, and now, and this was for this, this meeting, I just wanted to have more of a sense of where I was 
and he's going to come to our house and uh, give a talk now for the neighbors. <laughs> so I'm really excited about that. Um, and I am, um, I've been doing well. I've been uh, mostly in the forest for the pandemic. So I'm very lucky. Um, I've been going inward and working on a lot of proposals. And um, Nina being in Alaska, every time Nina's in Alaska, it's sort of like a pain <laughs> because, because I've been there with her and um, was it changed my life. It was uh, an incredibly expensive time and beautiful that part of that was our friendship uh, blooming. So um, yeah, I'm just excited to be here. Awesome. Thank you both. I really appreciate the opportunity to expand the discussion by the sort of repartee between the two of you and also anybody who's joined us with questions that you might have and, you know, relationships that, that you all share creatively. Yeah. So Nina, I just want to start with um, a question here. You know, you've been writing about this recently, you stopped depicting sites of extreme in environmental devastation. And you're wanting to create work that, you know, pulls people into the poetic space of potential, the finding that personal trajectory toward understanding and the metaphors of repair that are in the shattered rock and the frayed and line. What, what prompted this shift? And I know that's part of what you and Billy share as a theme. So I'm interested to hear more about that shift. Yeah, so um, for years, I've been really blessed and privileged with access to amazing climate scientists. Um, I think it's partially just where I hang out. The Wrangell St. Elias Wilderness um, is full of incredible science all the time. And that's where I've been living in the summer. Um, Anchorage also has a ton of climate scientists. So you could just socialize anytime and end up learning an immense amount about, you know, glacial hydrology or um, surface melt on the Greenlandic ice cap or something. So it's it's become something that has become part of the fabric of um, how I think. And um, for a long time, I was drawing, I was making work, trying to depict that gravitas, that hugeness, the interruption of the natural world. Um, and, and, making really big drawings um, sites with site-specific materials of things like clear-cut forests and pit mines and um, bomb craters and, you know, signs of big devastation. Um, and I mean, it really started about three or four years ago, but it's really come to a head recently, but where I saw this potential um, to reflect more on you know, how people are relating to their environment and how um, people behave in their day in day out lives and what they find poetry in and that that is less overwhelming than like big huge data sets coming out of climate science or my drawings of a huge pit mine. And that, um, you know, as a borderline activist, I would like to think that some of my work inspires behavioral change to be better stewards of um, the natural environment and each other. Um, and I realized that needed more personal interaction. So 
part of when Billy, Joe, and I, we traveled together for a month on the Alaska ferry system. Was that four years ago now, Billy, Joe? I guess this spring, yeah. Yeah, it seems like a little, it seems timeless in some ways, but um, I think there was this big shift where we all realized that it was the conversations that we were having with one another and these one-on-one -on -one interactions um, in communities that were actually so much more powerful than trying to do like big, huge public events or creating these standalone art objects that could speak for um, the complex issues that all of us were facing in our work. Um, and that sometimes those smaller conversations and smaller interactions had much greater reverberation than like walking by a piece of art in a museum that you're only going to look at for six seconds. Um, and so that was just a huge shift for me that's taken a while to show up in physical form in my drawings, but it definitely changed the way I was working in communities. Um, and so I could, I could show a couple examples of that. I can, I'm just gonna kind of bop around and screen share. I have, a, um, these are just some older examples of work um, of that kind of trying to express the overwhelming devastation of the natural world. Um, this is the Sedan Crater at the Nevada nuclear test site. It's the um, largest explosion-based hole on the planet. It's half a mile deep. Um, and I actually got security clearance to go and visit the site and be able to spend time with that hole. Um, this is one of the Kennecott mines. Um, this one's in Peru. It's, um, I think about 180 square miles at the Yanacocha mine. Um, these are some of the dredge piles in um, uh, near Dawson City up in the Yukon. I got to live there um, several years ago for a couple months through a residency. And um, these piles go on for just miles and miles and miles. Um, clear cut forests. So those are just some examples of like the really um, kind of big nasty stuff that I was dealing with. Um, yeah, I don't know if you want to say anything about that kind of intimate scale, Billy Joe, because I feel like um, we've talked so much about what actually transforms people. And, um, and then I can show some examples of the more recent work I've done, but I would just love to hear you say something about the work that you've done that feels transformative. Well, uh, speaking to the work we did together in Alaska, uh, for me, it was a really big deal to learn about uh, climate change in the, the area where it was happening and learn about the people like right there. We, we made a reader, which was, I think, one of the like really magical things or powerful things of our trip together was all of us um, contributed before we left. Um, with things we thought that would be interesting for us to read and sort of have a book club every three days together. So we would be in the landscape, we'd be re reading these different articles and having those articles ignited. And a lot of them were about, you know, the incredible value and vulnerability of Alaska um, to like be reading it and like seeing it 
uh, was really profound for me. And also to have that, um, that really intimate connection with the same group, I think, I think it's really worthwhile um, to consider like the traveling group. Um, I mean, there's, there's the tourism of it. There's, there's just so many aspects of it. And yeah, so in terms of transformation, I was like in a new place, making new friends. And um, I'm really grateful that that was my introduction to Alaska. Um, it was just so thoughtful. And um, so the project we did together, I helped put it together, was a five person artist residency organized through the Island Institute, which is in Sitka, Alaska. Um, and we worked around this concept of signal to noise, which in re recording technology terms is like the amount of desired sound versus background noise. But we were using that as a metaphor for, um, you know, desired, you know, nature versus climate change or indigenous knowledge versus scientific knowledge, you know, all these spaces where there's tension and where our focal points go. And it was just, it was a, a really, yeah, I think changed all of our lives, which I guess is like why Billy, why, why Billy Joe's here today. Cause it's like, oh, this is the beginning of so many things. So. Yeah, I'm really interested in hearing about the impact, the transformative impact of working in, you know, in Alaska's wild places on indigenous land. For years, you've pursued investigations in the Wrangles, and I understand Billy has been a part of that on Dene or Athabascan land, indigenous land. And as your images, your earlier images show, the colonial story of impact and extraction is really huge, but it, in here, it's still very much raw and ongoing. And as you move toward these themes of mending and repair in your work, as, as both of you do even, um, I'm, I'm really curious about your um, views around land acknowledgement. I think it rests on, on white people, on settler individuals or institutions to acknowledge that long-term stewardship of indigenous land. Mm -hmm. And how are you feeling about that or expressing that through your work? Well, I, rem I remember the first time I heard the word decolonizing. I remember it clear as day. Um, or maybe it was the first time I really thought about it. Maybe I had heard it before, but to me it was like, and I had been a student of what colonialism has done to the landscape. I, um, I, it's, it's been a huge part of my work since before I'm making anything that looks like what I'm making came to exist. And I had this hit of like, you, you cannot fill in a pit mine. So you can't unmine a landscape. You cannot heal trauma without a scar tissue. So how can we ever say we can decolonize? I just found the word itself like jarring and stunningly inaccurate because colonialization has been such a dominant force and it has changed every single thing in the in the world. Um, and so 
through conversations a couple years ago with Melissa Shaganoff, we were in, we were both working at the Anchorage Museum. We came up with this idea of that we, we need to be doing a hospice work for the colonial apparatus. We need to allow it to die and we need to recognize its impacts, but we also need to look towards what comes next. And just like with any death, there's like grief, but then you have to put everything back together. And so she and I were talking a lot. I was like using the word hospice. She was using the word potlatch. She's, um, she's indigenous Alaskan and like one of the most extraordinary knowledge bearers I've ever learned from. Um, and so for me, that was a huge transition towards not wanting to dwell in the past, but thinking about what will come and how to make work that welcomes in futures that have, you, I don't think you can decolonize, but you can, we can work towards having less white supremacist and racist power. And it's just a huge process. It's not like you get to like put a punctuation point at the end of the sentence and be like, we're done here. Um, yeah. So I, and I, well, and I want to talk more about that, you know, um, but I, I'm really curious because in a sense, it, colonialism is a big kind of hegemonic view. It's a totalizing discourse. It, it, it is about extraction and using things up and then going on to the next, you know, layer by layer, if you will, through through the earth and through time. And I I think that there's a lot of different things that um, can be colonized in addition to land that have to do with mind and body and um, speak to that systematic way in which um, the process of um, control plays out. But I understand that that um, is something that the concern about like recovery from that and what recovery looks like is this really shared theme between the two of you, at least that you've talked about and Billy Joe has done work in that as well. And so I wonder, Billy Joe, if you could speak a bit to um, the impact of like totalizing discourses in your life or what is the, the impetus looking in, into your work that shifts you toward, um, toward healing? you know, that shifts you toward addressing trauma and, and guiding people through art and another, and other forms that, that, that Nina has referred to. Thanks for that question. I, uh, to answer that question right now, it feels natural to go back to where I came from, um, which was a very white, very conservative Christian um, situation. And, and so um, because of that and going through the years of trauma with the separation from it, um, a lot of my work is specific to wanting inclusive sanctuary space. And um, I've been just lucky out of my mind to um, be able to do some of this work in Albuquerque. Um, and it, yeah, it's work that I want to keep doing. I was telling Nina today, um, I think maybe I was going to go in the wrong direction or a, a different direction, but, um, yeah, inclusive sanctuary space. 
And so or when I grew up, what when I grew up when I was connecting to communities, it was like through very specific fundamentalist approaches, um, lots of rule following. And um, but somewhere, you know, different things in there, there was humanity and there was beauty and uh, inspiration. And so I feel like now my biggest interest is um, finding ways that we can we can meet. And uh, one of the, the projects that's been the most profound for me was in the Albuquerque's International District. I worked with Artful Life on a seven month long project. And I was in for uh, once or twice a week for sometimes four or five hours. I was in a room with the most diverse group of people I've ever met. And um, at first I remember a kind of panic with the, there were lots of people who didn't speak English well. Um, there were cultural barriers. I'd normally um, come at everyone with a big hug and um, there were people in there that didn't want a big hug or, or even my direct eye contact, you know? And so it was really just incredible to learn um, how to communicate through art and how we transcended language um, with art and we're able to meet. And by the end of the time, we were all connected um, and I'm just forever in shock. And that led to quite a few other projects in the International District. And it's a, um, a theme in my work. I wanna make space, like public space, um, whatever is like the crazy thing in the cathedral. I like, I want that out on the street. Um, I'm really interested in that. Can you show and, us an example of that, Billy? Sure. I would love to see an example of what that looks like to bring that sacred fragment of a cathedral out into the public space. Well, I'm going to... Um, I love the complexity of the word sanctuary, too. Like, it's one of these words that just holds so much both tension and sanctity. You know, it's like Billy Joe and I love these things that have so many different interpretations and can be problems or joys and sanctuary as a word is definitely one. Yeah. And I, I like even want to be thoughtful about that word. Um, Cause it, it can mean so many things to, to so many people. And some people don't even want to hear it because it has a religious um, connotation. Um, so what I'm going to show you is um the project that I told that I was just talking, it's called Stories of International or Stories of Route 66 International District. And um, you get to see the people I was just talking about. While we're making that transition, um, tell me about where this is located. You said, is this in Albuquerque? Yes. So just on the other side of the mountain in the International District. And I lived down the street from this spot for 11 years. Um, the, they, um, so there were four artists. There was one director, Valerie Martinez, and then there were four artists um, in the group who helped facilitate leading activities. And this is all the group. And um, so 
many things came from this project, um, but it was a big uh, grant from the NEA and um, Morning Glory was one of the three major projects that came from it. And so um, over seven months, we met with the community and did activities together every Sunday. And during those activities, it just, I just, I wish this um, whole platform could be repeated in, in many other areas, just because it was so unreal um, how the community got to be involved in what you're seeing right now. So first, um, we, sh we had activities to connect and break those language barriers. And then um, in those activities, we also shared possibilities, like what do you want to see in your neighborhood? What, what do you want to be in your neighborhood? And um, one of the voiced things was some sort of monument um, or shelter. And then we like got really into public art and sh shared all these kinds of images. And, um, and then people would vote towards different images that were more appealing to them. And then, yeah, I won't take up the whole show with this, but it was just a gorgeous long process turned into three models that I made with a designer friend after you know many questionnaires and sketches and people talking about what sanctuary was to them. We built these three models and then the community, I was in the room um, and none of the main artists voted, the community voted. Um, and when they voted on Morning Glory, I just got chills through my whole body. But I never knew this would happen, this crazy uh, structure. So this is part of all of um, it happening. And now it's a permanently um, right on central in this neighborhood and, it, and people have pride in it and it hasn't been vandalized yet. <laughs> I can't believe it. Uh, that was three years ago. But um, and I'll tell us there. what it's made of. What is this? I want to hear just about what, what the structure is made of. It looks like glass and steel. So that's um, industrial acrylic, which I think is a material that gets um, not enough use. It's a really powerful material. And it, for me, the shadow is kind of everything with this um, material. So yes, just metal and acrylic and a whole lot of people. Nina Du Bois is an incredible artist who was a big part of this. Um, here's the ribbon cutting, it's just eight seconds. Um, but just a lot of happy people. So, yeah. Wow, wonderful. It's fabulous to see what you've been able to do in community and you speak to kind of like this porous process where you're using, you know, writing and feedback and sketching and layers to create work. I'm interested in, in hearing from each of you um, about as white artists, where do you draw a line between lifting up and supporting the voices of community and holding the stage in conversations about inclusivity? You know, in, in a sense, giving 
giving that stage up to leadership that is and always has been present, perhaps quietly, perhaps differently than white leadership. Mm-hmm. How do you do that work um, in ways that feel, you know, what feels right to you? And t- talk about your process, if you will, Billy Joe, and then I'd love to hear from Mina about that. Yeah. Um, I just think empathy is uh, where to start. I was talking about that with Nina today. Um, and well, with me, I, um, with, with all of these projects, I'm around so many incredible people and, um, from such diverse backgrounds. And so I've been really fortunate to work with such a strong community, um, which isn't always the case. So when it's not the case that there's um, that there's an uh, like a built-in integrity, um, you have to be uh, mm-hmm. yeah just so vigilant yourself about how you're interacting with people and um, and how you can share how how you can get people to share their um, power and. Um, authorship and and it's really like i've been so fortunate with this project um because i lived in the neighborhood and then this happened and i had these connections and then was really pushed to bring them farther and um so going forward into all my projects i i'm i'm looking i'm always looking for how to collaborate and and to be honest collaboration is just um, when it's done right, it's it's so it's such a lovely gift to um, to pull away and and see what happens together instead of um, having a preconceived idea and um, using that to dictate the project. Mm-hmm. I think that's something I've just learned so much. Um, is not dictating an outcome, which is so hard as artists. Like we are told, oh, to be a successful artist, you have to come up with this brilliant idea and then against all the odds, push your idea out there. There's a certain um, arrogance or just pushing cutthroat dog eat dog thing that we're like sort of trained into as artists that I really want to, but I, I've had the experience several times recently. Um, this comes from being white, but it also comes from being someone that travels to make my work a lot. And I'm often in communities where I don't belong um, on many, many, many levels um, where I've had to stop a project um, and, and either just completely cancel it out for myself and for it moving forward because it's not appropriate for an outsider to be working on something or, um, you know, starting to create something and realizing it's better handed off to someone from within a community. And I will give shouts out to the, you know, organizers and um, museums and cultural organizations that I've worked with that understand that sometimes um, it's, not appropriate to bring in an outsider to comment on something that's really vulnerable in a community. Um, 
and as an artist that's working a lot with climate change and the impacts of industry on land, um, those are often along racial lines. And that's usually the thing that people don't wanna talk about are the different ways of, you know, the different ways that environmental injustice is also racial injustice. And so, so often my work ends up going into that space um, and it ends up being something that I'm not really prepared to comment on with my own creativity. So, um, I'm really thankful that sometimes I can just go as a learner and a student and I can experience something. Um, and I think it's really flawed in the art world to expect an artist just to show up and be able to respond to something and make something really quickly. It's a problem with residencies. Um, and like Billy Joe's work, he's working in communities that he lives in, you know? I, on the other hand, I'm working in communities where I'm visiting and it's, um, it's just, it's a challenge and I guess I have to be prepared to um, lose authorship, fail, maybe not make something and that's okay. As a residency director and someone that's bringing people in to engage and doing the work you're doing with the colonial impacts, um, I guess I just would love to hear you say something about your role as an administrator and your goals in facilitating community engagement, because I think you do a great job. And but it's a really, it's, it's like a constant learning process. And there's a lot of like errors kind of big and small along the way. Um, one thing that, you know, I'm learning is that in it, in it, it shouldn't be a surprise. I mean, as an, I started out, um, you know, helping to establish this organization as an artist who, like many, just wanted to see more spaces for artists to share work. Um, but, but shifting the conversation to how are artists leading these conversations, and especially on a more local and indigenous level, what can we do to lean into those ideas and inclinations and initiatives that artists bring forward. So in selecting visiting artists, we're often really thinking about, well, what new strategies do they have to draw out and give um, stage and space for voices within the community to come forward and participate? Mm -hmm. And so that work is getting more, you know, more nuanced and, um, more important as time goes by. Mm -hmm. And more challenging during COVID. I mean, as your current artist in residence, yeah. speak to that, that the work I've done here has felt very different than it would in different times because of all of the work that I've done around sensitivity feels like it's, it's being rearranged right now, you know, <laughs> because of COVID and being able to talk to people. It's just different. Yeah. Let's switch to some images on your screen, Nina, of work that you um, have been making. And I want to explore a little bit more about that different nature that your work feels like it is exploring now because of COVID and how that's impinged on maybe expectations or sort of traditions, um, rituals of connection that have been intrinsic to you. I mean, you've spent a lot of this residency working in a pretty high degree of isolation. 
socially. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? Well, I will say I was a little freaked out coming here um, because New Mexico, where I've spent a lot of the um, pandemic, has one of the highest, you know, structures and plans for personal isolation. And then when I got off the plane here, I was like, oh my gosh, there's people in public not wearing masks. And I was really scared, honestly. Um, But then it's been awesome to have um, workspace uh, and to to feel like I can do productive work. Some of, a lot of the community-based work that I would have loved to have um, worked through hasn't happened, but I've found ways to you know, work with these metaphors. Um, I have this poem that just informs all I would do, but I don't know if there's time to read it right now. I might come back to that and read it. But um, yeah, so I guess um, I've been really, really aware of some of the fraying and fracturing that's happening societally and environmentally um, in the past four years. And then especially during the pandemic, um, and so I kind of came with this idea of like, oh, I'm going to make work about fraying ropes and rope waste. And, um, and so when I got here, I asked people to bring me, um, objects that they'd found on the beach, ropes that they had special relationships with, um, and I had a couple of really cool interactions, but I realized it was just much more, um, rich due to the COVID situation to go out and to be responding to what I could do through sensorial research. And um, so I I found, you know, anyone that's been in the marinas and the dry docks here know that there's no shortage of incredible ropes. But um, I think what was, what's been really intense making these drawings for me is choosing to not depict the environment to not depict what these ropes are tied to. So it leaves a lot of mystery about what is holding the tension, what is doing the fraying. Um, You know, they are kind of without direction. And so you can't tell what's going on. But something I realized is that the only reason we have ropes is because we need to connect something that we value with something that we believe is stable and that there's something that makes that relationship challenging. And that's why these fraying, these frays happen um, is because sometimes the connection between what we value and what we, and what is real and solid is sometimes violent and sometimes disruptive. And sometimes it needs to be disrupted. Um, This is an interesting thing, this um, monkey's fist knot, it's a rope that someone brought me and I have it here in the gallery. And a few people have picked up the actual object and said, oh, this rope is far too light for this knot to be tied in it. Like they can see why it frayed and why it broke and it's the wrong kind of rope to be tying. So this kind of knot is what you use to throw a heavy weight of rope towards something else. And it's heavy enough that a lot of weight of rope can follow it. and I just find it really fascinating that there's this local knowledge that is really specific. It's about how to get a large amount of rope from the shore onto a boat. But then to me, it's also like, what kind, 
the way my brain works is what kind of weights are we creating? Like what kind of anchor points are we creating in what we believe that we can transfer to something else? And um, I don't, the past two months, especially, I guess I've just had a lot of concern about folks that are like whites, you know, white supremacist, if they come to be, come to understand the negative impact of their beliefs and these things that they've anchored themselves to, how are they going to unmoor themselves from that? Or I've thought this, been thinking about this for years, all of us that are so dependent on extractive industries, when we start changing our behavior patterns, it's going to feel like a huge unraveling of life and a huge unanchoring. And so for me, these drawings are like not about rope. They're about um, understanding that sometimes we need to let things fray and we need to let the what binds us break. Um, and then other times we need to bind ourselves so closely. Um, yeah, I guess that's, I can show you um, <laughs> this drawing that I'm working on behind me. This is just something these are not as big of drawings as some, but. Um, what is that to, one about like 30 by 30 inches or something? I, I'm trying to. This one's um, 30 by 30. Wow, Asia, you have a good eye. <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> I, know, I know that space, like my body, those dimensions. Okay, yeah. so that's a really interesting kind of like positive negative space situation. Well, part, um, just to talk a little bit about the materials I'm using. Mm -hmm. This really black background is mm -hmm. marine grade graphite. Um, and the first drawing I did while I was here, it was really interesting looking because it the the grease, the graphite grease is just shiny, shiny grease basically, but it it was starting to sag on the paper and it just didn't work. Um, anyone that's worked in oil paint in a humid climate might know what I'm talking about where it starts to sag before it dries. And it was crazy on paper, something that could do that. So um, I figured out I could mix charcoal into the grease and it gives this shiny black matte thing. So I stencil out this space, rub in the background and then peel the stencil off and then start drawing. So Mm -hmm. By the time this is finished, you know, it'll all be detailed like that, but down here. So, mm. so beautiful. yeah, that's beautiful. I, I do like that, the, the sort of span that you're kind of encompassing in this stage, even if you surrender most of it, but still like anchoring from like white space into black space, you know, from, you know, sp spanning that and not, you know, not. I mean, the more that you surrender that white space, it moves to the midground. But I love how it's pulling in these two directions right now. And that tension is very intriguing. Yeah, I was telling Billy Joe this morning that I had kind of an... I'm not like a super emotional person. And I'm usually moved... Like by the time I'm making my art, I've usually thought about it so thoroughly that I don't have like some emotional breakthrough from my own art. But I totally had one of those emotional moments in the studio while I was working on um, this one. And um, 
because I just decided like there had been all this stuff that the rope was tied to. And I decided to just black blank that out. And all of a sudden I was having this internal conversation about like, what am I anchored to that? I don't know is there, you know, what in my mental health chemistry, what in my family's legacies, what mm -hmm. in my body that I might not know is there, am I still anchored to? And it just kind of hit me so hard. And um, I don't know what Billy Joe and I were talking about this morning was like the sense of like, we, we don't know what other people are going through. And we still have to see that they're tethered to their to things that they don't even know about themselves. And what a profound form of empathy that is to, to I always assume people that are, are behaving in ways that they're choosing. And there's so much that is inherent and systemic in our bodies and in our lives. And I don't know, I just wanna be a little, I, a lot more open to that. You're so, incredibly brave. Like you're drawn right to the tension point. And I, I, I want to speak to that in light of a recent post that you made. Um, you posted about the frustration you feel toward institutions that are doing, that aren't doing the work of inviting BIPOC people to the table for art panels, for adjudications, things like this. And you do that work often. And you spoke about now feeling that pressure to do the work of helping institutions become inclusive by connecting them to BIPOC leaders. Mm -hmm. It's a point that I take with a lot of sensitivity um, in the context of Alaska. Um, there's really this long and traumatic work that BIPOC leaders have been you know, enduring and trying to rise within a system that sometimes puts them in the position of competing with well-intentioned white artists. And so the, the tension is exacerbated by that um, competition and the traumas are still really fresh here. When you made that really bold statement about this, this work that you are doing here in Alaska, you know, in, through the post, who are you speaking to? Who, who is your audience? Definitely administrators and funders. Um, I, I know that being an artist is already kind of a form of double work where we're having to exist in society and then we're choosing to communicate things from outside of the mainstream. And so that to me, that's like a double work. And then if you add being a person of color or indigenous or, not able-bodied or a mom or a dad, a dad, you know, like there's all these things that kind of add another layer of work. And we can just kind of see this exponential kaleidoscope of work that gets added on top of people. And what I've been responding to a lot lately is that when a person says, hey, you're overburdening the system for these people of color or these people in this neighborhood or whatever, if someone speaks out, usually in my experience, the funder or the organizer says, oh, can you do the work to tell us how? Oh, can you do the work to help us remedy the situation? Oh, can you do the work? And I'm, I wanna 
put my foot down and say, if someone is getting paid to run a cultural institution, they're not, they should not be exhibiting unless they're ready to do the work to exhibit challenging and diverse work. They can't say they're doing it if they're not, and they can't depend on the triple and quadruply overworked constituents that probably make up their most diverse artists, you know? And so that's where I'm just, you know, as a white artist who's has the privilege to speak in those spaces, I'm putting my foot down and I'm doing it loudly and I'm being called a problematic artist sometimes. And I'm very willing to be that problem. <laughs> if it's a problem, I don't think it's a problem. I think I'm just asking people to do their job in the time we're in, you know? Mm -hmm. So, Thanks and for that I, I also want artists who feel overburdened to, to also say, I'm overburdened. Like, don't ask me to do that work. Mm -hmm. That should be the role of the institution. Mm -hmm. I want to shift to a question to you both that came from one of our listeners, Dale. Um, Dale, can I invite you to unmute and articulate that rich question, which is sort of long, and I'm afraid that I'll... <laughs> Thank you. Uh, yeah, sure. Um, well, so I, you know, I, I've followed Nina's work for a few years and just find it incredibly profound all the time. Uh, and, and this work is like no exception. Um, conversations with her and other artists that, you know, our brains and, um, and the cultures that reflect our brains are always trying to um, eliminate information, right? They're trying to save us time. They're trying to limit our actions and our reactions and our perceptions and just load everything with meanings that are automatic that we don't have to question. And what artists do, it seems to me, is that they, you know, they say, yeah, but what are we missing? Kind of what Nina was just articulating, you know, what could we be missing by just thinking of things in these conventional terms? And, and absolutely, as Billy Joel said, the sort of history of colonialism is, is epic. Um, and Asia, you too, that we, you know, we just, we keep mining, we mine people, we mine um, resources, we mine time, you know, we mine the planet, um, we, we use it up and we discard it and we look for the next thing we can colonize. And artists are doing such a great job of sort of, Nina, your, your, your point that, um, you know, the hospice of colonialism is such an incredible idea that it's, things are fraying and things are wearing out um, and, and the ties that tether us to all those assumptions are really beginning to tear. Um, and, and that maybe colonialism is dying. We're in the, the last throes of late stage capitalism and late stage colonialism. And, and there could be something to look forward to. So going back to my question, like that's the context, right? And um, of what artists do really well, better than almost any other kind of dialogue because they can step out of the conventional. Even scientists and engineers have a hard time doing that. Um, and I'm one of them. I'm, I, I'm both of those things, scientist, engineer. So I, I know that feeling. But in the very beginning of this exchange, you both 
hit on the dialogue, the quality of the dialogue, the quality of the learning, the quality of maybe the leaps, the conceptual leaps that you made together when you were face-to-face -face and there was face-to-face -face dialogues taking place. Um, I've had that experience with works of art. In, in other words, when I've, when I've entered into a dialogue with a dance performance, a poem, literature, a painting, one of Nina's drawings, the profound thing that usually happens to me is that it takes me where I've never been before and I start a dialogue of, the, you know, what could I be missing? Um, but I wonder, you two suggested that maybe there's, there's a quality of, uh, there are things in common with both, both kinds of dialogues, being in dialogue with a work of art by yourself and then being in dialogue with another human being. Where do those two things overlap and how are they different? Um, artist's point of view, from a creative point of view. That, that was the question. <laughs> you go, Billy. Okay. Um, well, first, I want to acknowledge that my art mom is with us, Michelle Montjoy. Um, after the Zoom, I highly recommend checking out her work. It's bananas. And um, I she's so responsible for so much of my work um, or she's been she's had a big impact on my work and she does fibers and rope stuff so it's like a cool I didn't know you'd be here Michelle I love you thank you um thank you for your question Dale I love what you said a lot of it sets me off in different directions um but it reminds me of something that me and Nina were kind of just talking about earlier that's kind of funny. Um, she was saying, I forget the total contents, but she was saying how um, sometimes I come to things and I'm like half spectral. And, um, and then I said, yeah, it's like on Photoshop, you have your opacity you can bring to a certain percentage. And um, that that's um, something I'm really interested in um, is like, how can I, you know, appropriately turn my opacity to 50% to let the other things in. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just, it tends to be a gift because um, if you're open, then, you know, there's there's this really incredible power, I mean, in, in connecting with, with others. And oftentimes, um, something I've been grateful for is, um, is just um, uh, letting someone, yeah, have the space and, and and, and, and oftentimes it's about doing this, you know, and just letting <laughs> you go. <laughs> um, somebody else uh, step in. Yeah, and there, there's all kinds of work. There's the work that's more personal. Um, I've, I've been doing public art pieces this year that were really more inner, um, especially, I think, inspired by COVID. I've um, just 
really gone inward, which has been, a, I'm very privileged and lucky that I've been able to like have space and time to like super go inside. And so it's been neat to make that kind of work. And yet it's been public art. So it's exciting for me that anyone could walk up to it um, and, and have it and might set off an experience. Um, yeah, and someone wrote me some emails about some of the work that I didn't know at all. And I love that when people reach out. And so if someone reach out, reaches out, I try to be as generous as I can. And um, yeah, I'm always looking at how I can get my opacity down. Yeah. <laughs> but you're no ghost. I love, I love, oh my gosh, this idea of approaching people the way we approach art. Because I think when we look at art, we we don't expect anything of it, but we hope for a positive experience. And also we're aware that someone intentionally made art. But I think when we approach humans, we sometimes don't realize that they are there with intention and with a really wild materials list of how they came to that place. You know, it's like art has this way of labeling it. Like this is made out of charcoal on paper made this year, you know, but humans don't come with those labels. So we don't see each other as rich and full of components. And I actually find an easier time getting swept away by art than I do by humans because I don't expect the best of humans. Um, and I really would like to, oh my gosh, I have so many biases and I would really like to um, approach humans the same way I do art. Like you're here for a reason. Somebody wants you to be here and you're here for, to do something. And I'm going to try to figure out what you're here to do. Like that would be in a, that's how I think about art. And I would just love it if I approached humans that way. I usually think like, oh man, what problem is this person creating? <laughs> but says the total introvert um yeah that's, that's a, a beautiful really, point i'm going to be thinking about that for a while dale thank you yeah. for, for that well i'm also going to be thinking about it is an excellent question dale I, it's really rich but i'm also going to be thinking about your point nina that art is teaching you about how to approach humans and that really speaks to why some people need to make it it's their native language and um it's essential to do the work to have that practice physically emotionally lots of levels in order to understand their relationship to the world mm -hmm. well i think it's i've I've had so many people say, because if you meet me, I'm kind of a physical spaz. I talk with my hands. I throw my head back and laugh. I'm a total spaz, but then I make these super meticulous drawings. And for me, it was like this way of bringing my body and my brain and my vision together that, because I have a very contemplative and nitpicky mind. And so to let my process be my teacher has been a huge lesson that I'm really thankful for. Yeah. Thank you. It's been so wonderful to speak with you both today, Nina yeah. Elder and Billy Joe Miller. Thank you for joining us for this hour of inspiration and adaptation.